came along to one of the shows. So I'll come, come watch, come support the show. And then Bruce didn't know who I was from anybody. Said, "Come on stage!" Like didn't know <laughs> if I could do improv. Never seen me before. Just said, "Come on stage with us tonight. It'll be fine. It'll be great." And it was. It was brilliant. Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, hi there, John. Well, hi, Margot. So nice to see you today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, well, our audience won't be seeing you, but they'll be hearing you. So I want to introduce Jonathan Nugan. He's a well-beloved improviser living in Norwich in the UK. And he's been part of the nursery, I think, in May Day. And what are some of the other places you've played with? So I... I teach for the nursery uh, and Maydays online. So I'm not part of the Maydays, but I'm part of the teaching sort of right. course that they have. Right. Um, but otherwise, I'm also a member of the Comedians, which is Britain's all pan-Asian improv troupe, mostly comedy. Uh, Wretched Hive Comedy, which is with my good friend David Escobedo, which is a Star Wars-based improv show. Um, the Improvised Play with Stephen Davison, which is a series of play that's improvised for between 45 to 90 minutes which is this year we were going to do Tennessee Williams called the Glass Imaginary it's a great name for a show. Um, <laughs> I'm also part of Unbridled which is a nursery original which is a program the nursery did or still does but did when I was there live and it's based it's a comedy show based on the the lives of posh people in upper class England and I'm also a member of Michelle Online which is the Hoopland School's um, online scenes well scenes team but we're mostly online at the moment obviously but we do lots of scenes and various other things here and there that I take part in because I like doing it um like I'm a member of the improv uh, improv place I'm one of the moderators there um which is a like a social platform for improvisers wow well that's that is terrific and I visited you on Facebook and I see that you like Marvel comics yes ever <laughs> could we say it's an obsession or not you know I am a therapist so it's all safe here Oh, no, it's fine. Um, I, yes, I want to say it's an obsession. I, I, I had a, I'm happily married now, but previous to my, my wife, I was, had a girlfriend who said I had an obsessive collection to collect collections. So if someone bought me something that was part of a small collection, I would almost obsessively try to find everything as part of that collection. I'm a very completist person. Um, but it's a good thing. It doesn't hurt anyone as far as I'm aware. So we're good. It's lovely. I admire what you've done. So let's talk a little bit about your beginnings. Um, did you like to play and act as a child? When did you get interested in drama? Um, oh, okay. So my parents, um, my parents are, well, my mother passed away a few years ago, but my father right. uh, came over here at the end of the Vietnam War. They went from Vietnam to, to the UK, refugees. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of my time 
in my childhood, sort of not really fitting in. And we used to watch a lot of films as a kid. I used to love acting. I used to love watching all different types of films with my parents. One of the things I used to do a lot to bond. And then when I got to school around about the age, I think it was about the age of nine or ten, I forget the exact age, I did my very first audition to be the King of Hearts in an Alice in Wonderland play. Um, and I loved it. And I had no lines. I think I made, no, I made two lines or something. And it was me and my friend Adele. I remember Adele was playing the Queen of Hearts. I mean, it had like one or two scenes. And it was a most wonderful experience. People were laughing and having fun. I remember feeling great about that. I sort of started doing more and more um, school drama uh, from there on, joining multiple groups and doing lots of um, plays and musicals. Um, and that's why I started doing improv a little bit, um, because my drama teacher, my first drama teacher, uh, Lisa Burgess, who I don't speak to anymore, I've not done, well, not in school, actually, in fact, um, showed us like Stanislavski and methods of how to improvise a character. Um, and it wasn't making up new characters. It was using characters that already existed in plays, but imagining what they did before they became the character in the play and what they did between scenes. So we would play out the scenes in between scenes to see what would happen and why we got that mindset. And so I've always come from improv, from a very character point of view perspective because of that, because that's where I learned a lot of my basic improv training from. So, yeah. That's lovely. And did you say, was there a large Vietnamese uh, population in Norwich when you moved there or were you? Uh, so I, my parents didn't move to Norwich. We moved to a place called uh, Lansing, which is the South Coast. It was a lovely place, a lot of retirees. A lot of people, so it's a massively beach community. Um, and there's, yeah, because a lot of my family came over. There's quite a large Vietnamese community there um, when we moved over. And like, I'd, like I had like three or four uncles and aunts down there together close spaces that's lovely yeah uh, but you did what so you were born there so there were mm-hmm. no cultural differences you noticed from home and then into the school life and well it's interesting i don't think i noticed a lot of cultural differences because either i forgot them or adapted very quickly as a child um to my surroundings uh, because when you are and this probably hopefully resonates for a lot of people who are children of immigrants or uh, refugees. You learn to keep your head down, um, and so you don't cause problems uh, because you're you know you part of a new community. You don't be an issue. And this was we're talking the early eighties when I was uh, when I was uh-huh. born. Um, so I sort of just tried to blend in. You know, played all the games that all the other kids played, and tried to be. And it's not until I was an adult, long removed from that time that I realized there were probably some issues. People called me names that I let them get away with that I shouldn't have done. And that names I don't want to repeat on any sort of platform for media purposes, right. that sort of thing. But I took it in good humor because I thought that was what we had to do. Yeah, that is what we did. And um, I want I don't want to say it, but I think Britain was more casually racist in the 80s and 90s. Like mm-hmm. there were certain words that you I wouldn't definitely not say now that I said happily as a child and not realizing how how they affected people. Not only about um, not only about their race and their culture, but also sexuality. All these things that children make fun of that we should. And I was never taught not to make fun of. It wasn't until I came to university that I realised that this the world is a bigger place than it is, and that we should be more respectful of each other. So I'm pleased I learned that lesson eventually, but not pleased it took so long. Yeah. So when you went to university. Were you studying there? Is university college, or is it the four years? I know you have a little different system there. Yeah, so yeah, so we do school until 16 here, then two years of 
like sixth form stroke early college. And then from the age of 18 to 21, we do, or 22, the three, four years university, something similar to college, I think, in, in that sense. And I went, that's, that's why I'm in Norwich now. That's why I went to university in Norwich. And I stayed after getting my degree. And what was your degree in? Uh, I have a degree in law. Very interesting. So you're good at debating games. Oh, this is difficult. <laughs> I can see the merit in debating games and doing them. However, being an improviser, I don't mind losing, which doesn't help in debating. <laughs> <laughs> and so so were you doing improv in college? What were you doing when you were in college? Oh, you know, I stopped all um, all my acting wow. and thing from when I went to university. It was like almost a tacit agreement with my parents that I would give up the silliness of acting and drama and study on a career. I chose law. Um, it didn't work out. So I didn't do any um, performance really uh, for about, I want to say it was 17 years. Um, so I went to university, stopped any performance, but I did play a lot of role-playing games. I really got into... Um, D&D. Like Dungeons and Dragons. Yep, Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and other role-playing games then. So that was a great, that was, a, that was an excellent creative outlook for me. Um, it helped me make a lot of character choices, a lot of point of view choices, which still serve me today in improv. In fact, um, I became president of the role-playing and game society at the university. And <laughs> um, yeah, and I learned a lot about being fair and rules and, and you know, how things can be upsetting for people and how to adapt to different situations. So that really does help me now in my improv. But yeah, I didn't do anything um, until about three or four years ago. Um, improv didn't you improv until three or four years ago? No, then, uh, yeah, I did some, maybe some like play reading and stuff like that, but never anything, no improv, not until about the age of 35. I think it was 35, 34, 35, yeah. And I'm wow. 38 now. And you're 38 now? Yeah. Oh, you're so young. So young and innocent. Oh, I love it. So what got you back into improv, John? I think there was always something in me that wanted to do it. But I think I had that thing that almost all improvisers have, which is the fear that they don't want to look stupid or the fear that they've forgotten what they're doing. Um, so I didn't approach any groups. I didn't search for it. I just saw, occasionally saw posters for, oh, my God, watch that. Never did. Never got around to it. And then one day I was playing... Um, uh, board games with uh, three of my friends, uh, two of them are a couple, Lena and Matt, lovely people, played board games yesterday. And then Chris, who was with us, our friend there, said, I'm going to go and do this jam later. Do you want to come along? Um, so and so we all went, okay, so Chris drove me, Lena and Matt, we all went down there. And it was a case of, put your name in a hat if you want to do a scene. I thought, well, I'm here. I'll give it a go. It was uh, in the corner of um, a pub um, in Norwich. And... Um, didn't know anyone else there, and my name came out first. I remember that. Uh. And I remember, <laughs> I remember getting the suggestion, something like hairdresser or something. And I did a scene with a lady called Emma Thomas, a lovely lady. Um, and I was so poor, I was so bad. If I was looking back at myself now as a teacher, I was now in probably looking at going, he blocked. He, he tried to be too funny. He wasn't very. He wasn't very engaged in the scene. But I remember the only thing I remember doing that was that people were laughing. My friend, Emma, who is a friend now at the time, I didn't complete stranger at the time, was also just so pleased that I was there. And we did a random scene about a hairdresser in Antarctica. That was the entire premise of that scene. <laughs> and I remember feeling really good at the time. I remember thinking, this is great. I like this. And then I did another scene later on, because we did, they did repeats. 
and that involved me being in a torture dungeon with the queen. That was a random scene. But I remember it. And then they said, oh, we're doing drop-ins if you want to come in. And so I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go. I, got, I was late to the drop-in because I couldn't find the drop-in space. Um, but they let me in anyway. And we played What Are You Doing was the first thing. I just jumped in uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and just played some games. And then they said, we do courses. Okay, so I thought I'd do a course, see how I feel. And then I did the level one course. This is with Dogface Improv in Norwich, uh, right. run by the wonderful um, Chris Reed, just in case he's wondering what this is. And it's still going now, so it still happens. Um, and I also teach them occasionally as well. But I did a level one course, a level two course, the long form course, and then the, I did a mixed course. Then I did a Harold course. And, they, and then in that time, they also, what they did was just wonderful. They brought in other teachers from across the country to teach. So I took classes with members of the May Days like Rebecca McMillan and Liz wow. Allen and Jules Munns because Chris Reed got them up and they all taught a different thing. I did, uh, Molly Merwin came up as well. I did a class with, with her. Um, and I just kept going and going and doing all these things. And then, and that's really got me into it. Like, and, I, and I found out improv was bigger than Norwich. And I found the nursery, <laughs> in, found nursery in London and did a, started doing drop-ins with them. And then I went to the the uh, the nursery, uh, sorry, not nursery, the May Days Retreat um, and did some courses with them and, and just getting more and more and more experienced. And then I got to the stage of, before the pandemic happened, I was touring around the country, weekends here, taking classes with different places in, in, in the country going, what class are they offering? What can I do to do extra things? Um, so yeah, that was, and then pandemic hit. So that's where we are now. Right. Well, there's certainly some wonderful schools in the UK. It's tremendous. Like I love Emma Bird and the work that she does in Liverpool and the Glossop people. I mean, one yeah. the, the one good thing about the pandemic, if there could I could say this, is that we're connecting with everybody all over the world now. Mm-hmm. So instead of only see, I live in a little small town in Florida. And so I was already doing either Skype or other devices to learn from teachers because I couldn't go to classes. And there, mm-hmm. and there were very few teachers that I could do that with, but that was lovely. But then everything opened up. So um, yeah. do you actually have a day job too or not? I do. Um, I work um, for a local authority. So what it means is the local city council. I work for them um, at the moment. I'm developing, a, it's very boring, but for those who are interested in social housing, I'm developing a new social housing system to record all our tenants and information. Um, that's what I'm doing for my day job. So. Lovely. And do you do any acting as well, or is it improv only for yourself? It's improv only. I have done in the past occasional favors for friends. I've got a few friends who are directors and who like work who have own production companies. And occasionally they, you know, they go, "We need someone at last minute to come and do like a couple of lines or look in the background or something." And I'm always happy to get paid to be a model. That's 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 the, that's the title I'm given. Uh, model fees. For turning up and just standing at a beach and looking happy, like, <laughs> sort of so I, I appear. I appear. Very, I don't know if I still do, but I did appear on the my local university, Norwich University, University of St Anglia's uh, promotional video. Um, like very briefly, <laughs> like maybe two seconds. But I'm there, um, but it was yeah. So I don't do a. I miss acting in many ways, but I don't miss the work that comes of acting, right. and that's why improv is such a good outlook for me. I don't miss having to learn the lines or the blocking. Right. All that sort of stuff. But what I will say about this, and some people do 
sort of, I don't know, in my head, acting and improvising is very close together, but some people don't think they are, and some people do, and there's no, there's no right or wrong answer to that, but what acting has done for me is that, and my friend, my friend Chris, Chris Reed, given the nickname Boomer, means I can fill a whole arena with my voice. I can, I can level my voice to such a degree that I can fill a stage and still sound like I'm not shouting, and that was a skill that was taught for acting. And the other skill I have, which I figure people don't have, was that I will almost certainly never not look at the audience. I will never turn my back on an audience. I instinctively will always make sure my body's pivoted so they can at least see half my body at all times. And that's just because of the old acting that was drilled into me when I was like between the nine, the age of nine and 18, like that oh. back then. Well, and there's people have a lot of opinions about this and that, and then we get into all the different forms and schools and blah, blah, blah. But um, I was taking acting as well when I started improv and I did a couple of things, but I didn't like memorizing all those lines. That was way too hard for me. But I think acting skills, especially Meisner technique and, and Stanislavski really helped me as an improviser. And some people say improv is acting. We're mm -hmm. just making it up. That's all. Um, so that's terrific. So, you got addicted to it pretty early on, wouldn't you say? I mean, you... yeah, as soon as I started doing it, yeah, I got like, I said I wanted to try everything. And I kept feeling good about it, so I kept doing it. And and I think that's how it happens with a lot of people. And uh, coming in a few years ago, there's certainly much more inclusivity than there was. Some of my uh, podcasts, I talk with people about the history of improv. Mm -hmm. You know, from back in, you know, the 50s and 60s and how different it is today. Um, one of the things I one of the things I first saw you in was I think it was um, Improv Uncolonized mm -hmm. with Stephanie Ray. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh. I mean, Stephanie was a, Stephanie is a wonderful improviser and is incredibly aware of like the lack of inclusivity in uh, in any art forms that are improv and you know she runs she watched part of or runs all the black improv alliance and i think i said this recently to a friend of mine that i didn't realize how uninclusive improv was until i got online because i'm very privileged i live in uh the uk in norwich where we don't have imagine that pockets of it but i don't think it's as bad as it is in say the us from the stories i've heard from my friends who are who are there um and I realized, you know, that I think what I was talking about, like, we are given roles to play in society, which is bad enough. But to be given those same roles to play in improv is what causes a lot of tension. And it lot brings the people bring it back again. Like, it has never happened to me, to my knowledge anyway. Um, if it has, I've, I've sort of brushed it off. But I know what Stephanie tells me about stories about black improvisers being cast in improv shows as negative stereotypes. Like, you know, and things that I would never think about doing to people, but like, I'm not going to say, oh, drug dealers and um, like negative people in society. And that's, and it just, that reinforces people's worldview. And then I was talking, thinking about this. And I'm thinking about, well, do I do things in my improv that reinforces that worldview rather than, bringing culture. And one of the things I was doing as a teacher and was I was teaching improvisers character through voices and accents. And one of the things that I discovered in myself, and this is something I discovered myself, was that many improvisers I've met from um, countries such as India, um, South America, 
have a much harder time with accents than I do. And I've got a very British, Southern British accent. And when talking to my wife, she speaks with a very Vietnamese accent. And I think to myself, if I didn't have that privilege of having this accent that I grew up with, I would find accents much harder as well. And so I've just basically stopped teaching character work through voices. It doesn't make a difference what your voice is to me, as long as you have your own point of view. And I think it's one of those sort of things that it took me all hard to myself to realize that I was being part of the problem without realizing I was part of the problem. And that is, in many ways, one of the definitions of privilege. And so I realized that I don't want to teach that particular thing anymore. So I don't. I tell people in my class, like, you will go to classes and people will tell you different voices are great. That's brilliant if you can do them. But don't feel bad if you can't. Don't feel bad if you don't want to. Don't feel bad if you can't do an accent. It doesn't make you less of an improviser in any way, shape or form. It just means that you have different tools that you will bring to this world. And people will see you in different ways based on what you do and not how you sound. It doesn't mean I disrespect people who do different voices or different accents. I do. I still do them. I know people still do them to great effect. Um, and I'm happy people do them without ever meaning harm to anyone. And right. what I mean by that is the accent is never the never the point or the joke. The accent is a reason. There. It's like I say, for example, I do Tennessee Williams play, improvised play. So we all do accents in that because all Tennessee Williams plays are well, ninety percent of them are based in one location. And we all have to share that region and accent. And we all try it. And it's great for that purpose. And the other 10% are basically streetcar named Desire. But otherwise, the other 90% are, are, are like, you know, southern states of America. And, and that's great. There's a point to that. There's a reason for that. There's no, it's not a joke. It's part of the immersivity of that play. But when you... And I watched this act. I watched this once. I'm going for a tangent. Sorry, Margo. I remember watching this excruciating... For me, personally, people might love this, but it's an excruciating short-form game I saw on YouTube once. And they said, this is a game, one of our favourite games. We give improvisers two different accents, and they've got to make a new accent out of these accents. And I watched for like 30 seconds, and I thought, oh, this is just very stereotypical accents. I feel really bad watching this. And I can't enjoy it. And I get a thing that I would have enjoyed it maybe four or five years ago, because I was doing person than I am now. But now I think to myself, that doesn't seem right. And the audience are laughing hilariously at it and going, but they're laughing. It's not a joke in it. They're just laughing at someone trying to make an accent out of two accents. And if I remember correctly, there were mostly white people doing these accents. It wasn't people of color. It wasn't even people of any sort of um, other ethnicity. That wasn't well, you know, not necessarily, even, you know, they were American white people doing these accents. And I felt bad for them that this is their form of, this is what they get to laugh at and that's what they get paid for. I felt bad for the audience that this is what they've either come to laugh at or have learned to laugh at. And I don't remember the name of the people I was watching. I just, you know, you do, sometimes you put YouTube, you put improv in, you let, you let, you let YouTube run. Uh, so I skipped that one. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I've, I've come to realize, now I may change my mind again, Margot, in two years. You never know, improv, like things move on. But I like to tell my students that, do not worry about accents. If it scares you, then don't do them. But be your, and I like people to bring themselves if they can, as much as they can. Because my friend Irina Wilder, Dr. Irina Wilder, sorry, um, she has a wonderful quote that I like to say is like, you cannot get outside of your comfort zone until you're inside your comfort zone. Wow, so, yeah. yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful quote. It's brilliant. And I never thought about it. But yeah. 
So I talked a lot there, Margo. I'm sorry. I just went off on a tangent. No, no, no. No apologies. Remember, there's no mistakes, no failures, no apologies. We throw that out the window there or on the wall. Um, so you've gained a lot of self-awareness and insight into your own behavior yeah. and then passed it on to your students, which is so lovely. Um, I, I wish I'd had you for a teacher when I was obsessed with trying to do voices and I bought this, I think it was a CD set of a, a master voice guy and all these different accents and uh, just being myself is enough. Yeah. Being ourself. And, and Jimmy, you know, Jimmy Corain over in the US, you ever heard of him? He does podcasts too. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, you're, you are enough is a wonderful phrase to tell students. You are enough because mm -hmm. there's no mistakes. Um, you know, uh, I want to go back to when we we're talking about you got bullied. You actually got bullied when you were a kid and teased mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. And, you know, some of our great comedians had those experiences as well. And that's they discovered humor as a way to defend against it. And mm -hmm. we can even use improv. Now I've done classes with kids improv for bullying, not to teach them how to bully, but to how to yeah. work with bullying. And, and uh, so I think improv is so far reaching in terms of the work we can do. Do you work with kids at all or teenagers? I, I don't. Um, I know some improvisers who do and it's wonderful that they do. I've no, nothing. I'm happy to do so if I was ever asked to do so, but there are laws in this country, which are make it more complicated. You have to get certain checks done to say that you are capable of working with children without being a problem. And that's something I don't have at the moment. Um, but I see the the merit in it. I mean, I'll this is this is not this is non improv story, but I'll tell the story. So I used to work. The reason I'm doing a computing job in is because of the pandemic. Before that, I was a housing officer, which basically someone used to go out and check on people in their in their tenancies in the houses. So I used to go to lots of visits. Um, and my office used to be next to um, a place which took kids who were excluded from school. So my office was out on the stick somewhere, and then the building next to us was basically a place where children went when they weren't at school; they were excluded for one reason or another. And I remember one lunchtime, I was walking from my office to the shops to get some lunch. Um, and I heard the kids making um, sort of kung fu noises as I was walking past. And I thought, Do you know what? These are kids. They need to learn. So I turned around. I went and talked to them and said, that's not appropriate behavior to do that. And they all looked really cheapish at me. They didn't say anything. They, just all, they all walked away. And, you know, so a friend, well, I've told them. I've done my bit. Went to shops, came back. Then I got a knock on my office door from the facilitator who came out and he must have seen what had happened and asked them what had happened because he came back and said they want to they want to apologize and the kids they all did they said that they apologized and they said it wasn't aimed at me they said they were doing it because they'd watched the film kick-ass the night before or something like that i don't know whether i believe that excuse but i did say to them whatever you did or didn't it's you need to be aware that your actions in the public affect people and there might be people who are like me who are not as brave as i am Mm -hmm. who will think, all right, I'm not going outside again today because there are people making noises that would have, are offensive. And I had to think that had some effect on them. Maybe not all of them, maybe just one or two of them. But to let them know that they're... You need to think about your actions and that sort of thing. And so though I never taught kids in a particular sense, it's one of those sort of things that I think it's all our responsibility as fully formed adults to, if we see these things happening with developing, developing minds is to sort of challenge those behaviours. And I mean, I only go a step further. I challenge those behaviours, even people who have developed minds. Like I have people who have, um, I was once described, um, 
someone asked me once, and they didn't mean anything by this, bless them. They said, oh, I thought you were going to be black when, they, when, they, when I turned up for their doorstep because my surname goes NG and they thought I was Nigerian. Um, I told them my surname over the phone. Um, I said, no, no, I'm not. That's uh, something that's... Um, He's like, well, you sound, and then they did that thing they always said, well, you don't sound like you're Chinese. I'm going, well, I'm not Chinese, was my first response. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were an older person. Let's, um, so I told them, like, this is not right. This is not something right. I appreciate your perceptions, and I understand this. And I said, it's, it's, it's not very nice to hear those sort of things out loud. I said, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. And I know you don't. But again, I'm very thick skinned, and I've had training to do all sorts of things like that. And my improv world also helps me a great deal with becoming, like, letting things fall off my back. But not everyone will feel that. And I said, said to them that some people, you may alienate certain people in this world. And if you want to, fine. I'm not going to stop you because it's a free world. You, you have right to your thing, but right to your, your opinion and do what you want. But if you aren't looking to alienate people, then I would just consider, if someone said a similar thing to you about your appearance, how would you feel? They didn't take it very well. But what I'm saying is that I still feel it's worth teaching everybody how you f- how you perceive and how you react to things that might be hurtful, um, and maybe considered. And it's a difficult conversation to have, isn't it? It always is with people who have been your friends for years, perhaps, or people older in your family. Because um, my grandfather was the same way. My grandfather, before he passed away, bless him, was uh, used to say there are too many black people on television. He used to say to me when I was this was the '90s. I was watching a lot of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, basically, is why he and he just kept making that comment every time I watched it. And he didn't mean anything by it, I don't think, but at the same time, he was making a stand observation. But I said, That's... I didn't challenge him because he was my grandfather. And I was young and I didn't know what that was at the time. But now thinking back about it, now I think myself, I, well, if I was who I am today, I'd like to think I would have said something. But like the 10, 12 year old me, my grandfather who's watching me, my parents are working, wouldn't dare say anything to my grandfather um, about that. And we might accept it as normal mm. when we're yeah. young and hear these things, unfortunately. But I got to go back to, you did teach children. You taught the children that day. Yeah. An important <laughs> message. So you have taught children. So there, you yeah. know, I, I, I visit Liverpool, not all the time. I've been to Liverpool about four or five times because I'm a beetle nut. And um, I remember walking by, you know, some schoolyard looking in somewhere and, and somebody yelling out, peed, peed, there's a peed. And I was like, what? What does that mean? Pedophile, you know, because an adult is looking in or something. I don't know. It was crazy. Um, but wow. uh, do, do, this is really off topic. But do you no. like, what do you think about Ricky Gervais? Do you ever watch Ricky Gervais at all? I never really enjoyed his work and you know i mean if he wants to employ me feel free but i i've never met him <laughs> um i way to hedge your bets john <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> <laughs> um i do not find cringe humor like utter cringe humor very funny so I've never watched the the British Office like that TV show. I don't watch. I know I know did great great work here, but you know, um, and I I've, I've never I've never really enjoyed his monologues. And I watch some award shows and those sort of things, but I do see value in the things that he can do. You know, he has that he has that he has that platform, and he can do that 
sort of make a satirical view, I guess, but I just think it's being mean-spirited. And being mean-spirited is something that I do not find enjoyable. Like, I don't find prank shows enjoyable in the same way. Like, uh, any sort of thing where someone gets, like, you know, pranked at the end of it. What was that thing that Ashton Kutcher did, that programme? Come on, it's called Punked. now. Does Punked. Punked. Didn't enjoy that either. Anything I think where someone is not in on the joke, I think is, it's not fun for me. Well, it's laughing at instead of laughing with. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's that sort of thing. And laughing at people who are less fortunate. It's just another way of, it's another way of bullying in many ways. Absolutely. So another question then to follow up on that one. What do you, are there any British comedians that you really love? For me, Peter Sellers is one of my favorite, but. Um, I, you said you watched a lot of movies when you were younger. I don't. I did. I did watch a huge amount of um, movies when I was very young. I'm trying to think now. Um, oh, comedians. Well, I mean, I I used to like. He doesn't, doesn't tour anymore, and, and, just, and because of his conditions, got so bad. Billy Connolly was someone I used to like a lot. Yes. Um, and it's because he used to tell stories about himself, um, and and tangential stories at that. And he was just very excitable and very happy to be there, and I, just makes some wry observations. I remember just I remember him just being very funny for the energy. But I know that he's got a comic condition he's got now. I want to say I think it's Parkinson's, but I'm not sure. Um, so he's he's now retired from touring and doesn't do it any longer. I never saw never got to see him live, which is a shame. And Bill Bailey, I enjoyed Bill Bailey as well at the British stand up. Um, I've watched him a couple of times. I enjoyed that. Uh, Acting wise, one of my two of my favorite actors from my childhood when I was growing up um, were Alan Rickman. He's now passed away, obviously. Yes, brilliant. Um, and he didn't get into acting to quite late in his life, so that was you know that's always a good inspiration for me that one day it might happen. Like <laughs> for me, but yeah, yeah, Sheriff of Nottingham and, and Hans Gruber and uh, Kevin Klein was also one of those actors that I enjoyed watching an awful lot when I was younger. Um, and though you know he plays a silly version of a stereotypical sort of gangster in fish called Wanda. He does it in such a way that it's not lampooning the the race anyway, he's lampooning himself the entire time. I mean you can tell it's a lampoon story. Uh though I mean I just like that that sort of like way of being, I guess. They were sort of ways of being acting without me worrying too much about, oh, I was very immersed in both their characters in their films that they do. Um yeah. I don't watch many films now. I've mean, I watched a lot of superhero, as we said, Marvel films and that sort of thing. So I'm less about the acting now than I'm more about the spectacle. But I remember watching a lot of films when I was younger. Like, oh, this is interesting. Like acting techniques and how the eyes look. A lot of acting, a lot of eyes. I discovered was a a thing for me. Yes, I, I know. I I kind of in my teenage years was a Monty Python fan, mm-hmm. and I was speaking to somebody who had never heard of Monty Python. Oh, that was Will Lure, I think, who said, you know, when he was growing up, he'd never heard of Monty Python, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of improvisers were referring to Monty Python. He had no idea what they're talking about. Um, just uh, so, what is your favorite color? No, I don't want to ask <laughs> in, <laughs> dumb questions, but there are no dumb questions. Um, so, but I think that we get influenced a little bit by the actors we really enjoy and watch mm-hmm. and study and all of that. I'm, I am a fan. <laughs> I'm obsessive fan of British crime stories. Oh like, yeah, like the, they had one recently called Endeavor which was based on Inspector Lewis when he was yeah. younger. And, and now the, 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 the great detective, the, 
the be- the last detective I think is one. I don't know. I I just love those. They're silly. And uh, yeah, I I grew up watching um, David Suchet in the TV series Agatha Christie's Poirot, which is huge. I've got a whole box set, and I've got the box set. I've got all the books physically, and all the books and audio book as well, because it's just nice to have different versions of it in case I want to watch it in different ways. Um, <laughs> I don't want to mention something else. There was, one, there was one other actor that didn't do a lot of acting, but had a great influence, I think, on my improv like way of doing things. And it was... I don't remember seeing him in one film, and it had such a profound effect on me that I love the character so much. It was Mike McShane playing Friar Tuck in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was that character of Friar Tuck who is so silly and bumbling, and yet at the end has this dramatic moment. I thought myself... That sort of actor I want to be, someone who can make people laugh and make people cry in the same film. That's the sort of thing I want to do. I never, I don't think other films he's ever done, bless him. Obviously, he's been in Who's Lies It Anyway and then some tours of improv. I've seen him since. Um, I remember him, like, I remember going, this is the first time I remember trying to find something about someone up because of my age, I'm old enough that I had to use a library and not the internet to find out with Mike McShane. So I was going to try to find, and there's nothing. I couldn't find anything in the library books or anything about him um, because, you know, he, he was a pretty big name, I guess, in Canada and America, but in the UK, yeah, I couldn't find any books that were in our libraries about Mike McShane. But I remember being obsessed for a brief period during, I can't find anything. And then the internet happened, and I could look him up. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to look at that movie again then. Michael Shane or Shay? Mike McShane. Oh, Mike McShane. Okay. Yeah. All right. He plays Friar Tuck. And it's just, he's only been here for maybe, maybe seven minutes or something. But I remember having such a profound effect going, this is great. I love this character. Like, <laughs> Just made me happy that he was there. He's a great actor. Yeah, I don't fuck off anything else he's been in. Suddenly, um, he's been but, in uh, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head, other than Who's Line, which he did a lot of Who's Line. Um, but he did uh, Office Space. He was the therapist. Yes, in Office okay. Space. Okay, all right. Yes, that's something. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, just from Wonder because I just really liked it. <laughs> I think I think that's the sort of thing I like to do. Funny and full of pathos all at once. Beautiful. So going back to improv and John, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you founded Comediations? No, I didn't. I didn't found oh, Comediations. I'm sorry. I found, uh, so Bruce Tang, um, British, British um, I want to say Chinese. I never actually asked him. I feel bad if he's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, improviser. Um, my, this is my understanding. Now he may correct me in the story, but this is my understanding of the story: is that um, there's a gr- hoopla uh, allowed a group, called, well, gave space, sorry, gave space to a group called Do the Right Scene to have um, a monthly show on their stage. And Do the Right Scene um, is uh, a, like an all-person of color sort of like endeavor run by um, at least two people, maybe three or four people. But I know Monica Gaga and Ty Campbell. And there's someone else, I can't remember her name. I feel very bad, I can't remember her name. But they do a thing where they have stage, a stage for over people of colour. And they do a thing called Crash Landing, where people come along who've never done improv before, and then they can get on stage that same night. So you pay to do a workshop in, in like the, the early evening, and in the evening you get on stage with the seasoned professionals from Do the Right Scene. Um, and I think on my mind, Bruce was like there watching or doing, because it wasn't just black people, it was like everyone of any you know, person of colour come and do it. And then Bruce, I think Bruce saw that there was space for an all Asian group to do it. So as far as I understand it, my understanding was like a message went out, like like the bat signal, like to all Asian improvisers in mostly in London at the time, come along, we're gonna make a new group. 
come be part of this you know, all Asian extravaganza. And I didn't join until about three or four months in because uh, I wasn't. I'm not based in London. And a friend of mine said, "Oh, you should join this group. I'm in it." Okay, and I got part. I got I put in the messenger group. I came along to one of the shows. So I'll come, come watch, come support the show. And then Bruce didn't know who I was from anybody. Said, "Come on stage." Like didn't know if I could do improv. Didn't know if I was any good at improv. Never seen me before. Just said, "Come on stage with us tonight. It'll be fine. It'll be great." And it was. It was brilliant. Um, and it just felt nice. And we were. And we all. And wonderful thing about it is, not only do we all come from different schools of improv, like literally across three or four different different schools of things they're doing, different groups. We're not afraid to bring ourselves to the stage in any way. Um, and we've developed a show. I say we've Bruce has developed the show mostly uh, with uh, where we have our basic show is we have um, an entertainer of color, so a stand up or a monologist or a storyteller or something. And basically, we're doing an Armando, effectively. But we let them do their set or whatever it is, and then we pull things from that. Um, and that brings up lots of things up. Because a lot of them talk about their cultural heritage. And that allows, and that gives us, okay, we can do this from our point of view as well. And it's nice to pull those things through. So it's nice to have an all-Asian show. Um, and we all feel very relaxed with each other. And, you know, go wrong, we, we, we practice a lot. We do, we, it's one of the groups I still, that I've had weekly rehearsals with pretty much all the way since through the pandemic. Every week we meet and we do um, some stuff to practice again for bonding purposes. And we go to each other's birthdays. It's nice online. Um, the last show I did last show I did live was with them back in March. Um, that was in Bristol. We did that. And, yeah, and it's great. And it's a lot is of fun. There, I'm sorry. Is there a link to that group we can publish? I don't know if it's in yeah. the link you sent me. Yeah, so uh, there's a Facebook group for Comediations. And it's at Comediations, which is, I'm going to spell the word, C O M E D I. A S I A N S, as in comedian, comedian, but Asian at the end instead. Comediations. Um, it's a yellow symbol well, with our name in the middle. But on Twitter and Instagram as well, the same name. And we're we're doing a show uh, on the thirtieth of January with everybody. Everybody get in here festival, which I still, I do want to talk about that as well. Um, I don't know much about it, but I still want to talk about it. And uh, we're hoping to do a show for. Um, uh, Lunar New Year as well, which is the 12th of February. Um, so that weekend, we'll hopefully do something then. But it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely group. And there are people from all across, you know, I say pan-Asian countries. And it's just fun. And we, we try different things. And because we have different disciplines and different ways of doing it, I'm a more slow, grounded, realistic sort of... And now I've got people who do more wacky, crazy. And it's just nice that we all meld together. It's like having... The equivalent of the old hot pot, and we all put something into it, and it comes out as a beautiful flavor every time. So that's lovely. That's wonderful. We'll definitely post that with the podcast with the text I accompanied to the podcast. Um, I just love that idea. Landon, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you, Margot? Have you thought of a question you'd like to ask John? Well, I want. I think that what's intriguing to me, John, is uh, your background in in you know doing role playing games and things like that. And how do you think that has uh, affected uh, just how you perform? Um, you know, does your brain kind of fire the same synapses and whatnot whenever you're in a scene? Oh, um, yes, it's it is fascinating. Um, if everyone has ever done role playing games, there is an old saying in role playing games, especially Dungeons Dragons. The, the, the plot of the dungeon master will never survive contact with the players. 
Um, basically meaning that players will never do what you think they're going to do when you plan for a scenario <laughs> in any way, shape or form. If you think they're going to go into the bar and start a fight, they won't do it. If you think they're going to go shopping and buy some clothing, they'll start a fight. It's just, it, they'll never do anything you want them to do. And that's the joy of role-playing, but also brings me that joy in my head that I think that years of playing role-playing games have given me the ability to deal with anything that happens on stage. <laughs> if someone were to effectively throw their clothes down and run naked across the stage, I think I could make it work in a scene now. It's got to that stage. <laughs> Um, but it has given me, it's one of those sort of things, it's given me the the downside to it as well. So I had, I've had this note a couple of times with te- teachers. Um, so someone gives me a shocking scenario and they, and they again, they're going, your face didn't look very shocked. And that's because I was expecting it. So, because <laughs> my face, I'm always expecting the weirdest thing to happen in any particular scenario. <laughs> so someone could tell me, my hands are now made of sharks. I go, that's nice. I would just react in like a perfectly normal way. Um, so it has gone. I've gone too far the other way, but it, it does mean that what I do like doing, and this is one of the things that I do on my ten minutes with, what I do on my Facebook page, um, which I forgot to give you a link to, which I remembered, um, is that I like playing with anyone of any experience level of improv, even if you could, even if you've had no experience at all. I like to think that I will be able to make a scene and be happy, give you the space, because I can react to anything. I'll adapt. It's one of the things I'm very good at. Um, when it comes to that, and I'm patient and observant. Um, it does mean I don't initiate sometimes as often as I could do, perhaps, because I like to, I'm more like, oh, this is what the scene's about. Now I think I can add something to the scene um, sort of player. Um, but that's just, I'm mean, comfortable doing that, and I like doing that. But I will challenge myself. I'm doing some classes now. Um, I'm taking classes with Patty Styles to help me break my patterns. Um, that's a nice class to do. I'm doing a class, two classes with Inbal Lori, uh, who is, uh, I believe, um, Israeli improviser working out of Germany, who speaks English, thankfully. Um, and the two classes I'm taking with Inbal are uh, the logic in the illogical, so doing um, non-realistic scenes but grounding them in a realistic way, like say you're two dinosaurs having dinner, like and just talking about normal life stuff, but you're still dinosaurs. And the other thing is dark and uncomfortable scenes uh, where we play horrible characters and situations and we learn to play those um, to a, a good effect. And it's almost it's reminiscent of, uh, for me, um, the, the practitioner Antonin Artaud, which is the theatre of cruelty, which is you make the audience think about the world by showing them the cruelest version of it and the most rigorous version of it and going, this is, we're taking this concept and making it so big that you will think about this concept when you leave this theatre. And that's like how Black Mirror works, I think, to a certain degree. It makes a horrible concept. And people are sort of talking about it for days going, but that's just like this situation, or that's like this happening right now in the world. That's what those conversations are about, because they're born from these very dark places. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the sort of scenes that I'm doing with in, in Bal at the moment. So, And they are all help things that help me become a better improviser. And one of the things that I, I tell this to everyone I meet, actually, um, I have certain rules in my head about what how I approach improv, certainly. And for every show that I appear in, I will make the effort to watch another show so that I do not feel big-headed about saying, oh, I'm above watching other shows because I'm in them. That's not true. I will watch every hour of a show that I do, or every 10 minutes that I do, I will make the effort to find something else to watch that I've not seen before, for someone else if I can. And for every class 
that I teach, that I impart knowledge, I will try to find another course where I can take a class. So I'm still learning as well, so I can keep imparting that knowledge. So rather than imparting the same knowledge I've had for 10, well, four years, I will use new knowledge that I've got and go, oh, I learned this recently. This, this will help as well and that sort of thing. And I, so I will, those are my rules in my head. I don't expect everyone to take those rules because I come from a place of privilege where I can afford to go and watch improv shows and I can afford to pay for courses and I get paid to teach. So I get paid so I can use that money and invest it in the improv world itself. But for me, that has always been a starting point. So I never want to get to the stage where I think I'm above, I hope I never will, and no one ever does, but where I think, oh, Joel, I've got this. I understand improv. It's done now. Like, that's not a place I ever want to be at. Um, so I will take classes with whoever and wherever I can um, as often as I can. And I feel sad that I can't take all the classes, but I can't understand that I can't take all the classes. It's like <laughs> office going, yeah. Um, well, John, in my experience, the first minute you think you have everything figured out, you immediately get on stage and uh, are reminded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in, in, in whatever way, the improv universe will have... It's way Absolutely. to humble. Will it will humble you? It will humble you in some way. Thanks. I hope you. Thank you. I'm glad you agree, Landon. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, nowhere is hubris a... punished more <laughs> than than uh, than on stage. That's for sure. It's so true. So true. Those are beautiful thoughts you just expressed about your rules. Of course, I like the idea. I always like the idea that there's no rules. When I teach, I, I try to emphasize that so much, no rules. And <clears throat> But when I first started teaching improv, I had this list of rules that I would give out and make people even more anxious than they were when they yeah. signed up to come into the class. And, you know, they're feeling anxiety anyway. Um, what, what a brilliant person you are. I just... Uh, yeah. I'm so glad we hooked up and maybe um, we could do a scene and um, mm -hmm. we could tie up this end and then maybe do a scene that we can show at some point. How's that sound to you, John? Sounds great to me. Yeah. All right. So we'll say goodbye to the folks in uh, podcast land for now. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. And uh, this has been John Nugan, and he's a wonderful improviser and a human being. And of course, my brilliant uh, audio engineer, Landon Kirksky. Oh, Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott. <laughs>